Johnson back to Fortino. Fortino rolling puck down low. Shot scores. It's Pula again. Canada wins gold in overtime. Welcome to Changing on the Fly, a podcast about hockey, politics, and social change. I'm your host, Aaron Lakoff. Like blades on the ice, Changing on the Fly cuts right to the heart of today's most important issues in hockey. We go beyond the stats and pundits to bring you hard-hitting analysis on the politics of the game we love. From taking on racism and sexism in the locker room, to looking at the impacts of climate change on hockey, we amplify voices from the margins and bring them to center ice. Stay with us. Hey, what's up? Aaron here. Just a few quick things before we get into this episode number four of Changing on the Fly. If you like this podcast, and I think you're going to love this episode because it's a much needed injection of feminism into the hockey world, please support us. You can do that by going to patreon.com slash changing on the fly, making a really small donation. Even $1 a month helps. It keeps independent podcasts alive. There is no one out there right now doing this kind of podcast, looking at issues of social justice and hockey. So please, please do support us. Once again, patreon.com slash changing on the fly. Also, we are a proud member of the Upford Network. Find your new favorite podcast at upfordnetwork.com. All right, that's it. Let's get into it. Welcome back to Changing on the Fly, a podcast where we look at hockey, power, and its place in society. I'm so happy to have you with us today. My name is Aaron Lakoff. Just a reminder before we get into things today, if you want to subscribe to this podcast, you can find us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you like getting your podcasts. Leave us a rating or a review there. And if you want to hit me up for feedback or suggestions on the show, you can email changingonthefly@podcast at gmail.com. So today's show is all about feminism and hockey. And it's a live taping of this amazing panel discussion we had at Concordia University. But more on that later. So why feminism? Well, like Justin Trudeau said, it's 2015 or 2018 now or whatever. I mean, the year doesn't matter. But what does matter is how women are treated in the hockey world. And for too long, it's just been taken for granted that when we say hockey, it's assumed that we're talking about men's hockey. Women's hockey has been ignored or overlooked for way too long, despite the fact that there's elite level female hockey players out there playing an amazing game. So feminism, put simply, is a movement that fights for the dignity of all women. And it's a movement that should be embraced by all of us everywhere we see inequalities happening between men and women, including on the ice. So as we're recording this, the 2018 Winter Olympics just wrapped up in South Korea. And as much as I hate the Olympics as an institution, it's really amazing to see how they showcase female athletes, particularly in hockey, where, again, they normally don't get that much attention. 
The U.S. versus Canada gold medal women's game was absolutely epic. And I think the USA's victory is so significant because it comes not even a year after their team went on strike to demand fair wages for their labor. And they won that strike. However, even on the platform of the Olympics, we still see sexism at the highest levels of the game. There was an opinion piece in French in the newspaper Le Devoir, and we'll put a link up to that in the show notes for this for anyone who reads French, which shed light on a recent comment made in Pyeongchang by René Fassel, who is the president of the International Ice Hockey Federation. Asked whether or not there should be body checking in women's hockey, he said unequivocally no, and that, quote, the error we mustn't make is when women try to play like men. Women should play like women. Okay, well, maybe he could have been arguing that both the men's and women's game should be on equal planes. But then he went on to say that what we need to protect in women's hockey is its, quote, attractiveness and beauty. Attractiveness and beauty? Are these words that we'd use to describe men's hockey? Definitely not. It's reinforcing stereotypes about women hockey players being delicate little angels unable to compete at elite levels. And the main problem, rather than always comparing the women's game to the men's game, is that it should be women at every level in decision-making body who are making these choices about their own sport. Anyways, we're going to get deep into some of these questions on today's edition of Changing on the Fly, diving deep into the world of women's hockey, and asking who gets to call the shots, where the power lies, and how women can rightly take up more space in the game that we all love. The panel discussion that you're about to hear was recorded at the Feminist Media Studio at Concordia University in Montreal on January 31st, 2018, and it was amazing. So let's get right into it. So we'll get into this. So we have a wonderful panel here. I'm super excited to have uh, these three guests with us, which I've really been saying, like, I think are like the three uh, finest feminist voices we have in hockey here in Montreal and people who've contributed a lot, you know, in their own ways and in very different ways. But uh, our, our first guest is Meg Hewings, who is the general manager of Les Canadiennes. So we'll give her a round of applause for being here. And just to her right, we have uh, Safia Ahmed, who uh, just actually graduated from the journalism grad diploma last year, uh, wrote for The Link, wrote um, some really awesome pieces that I found super informative uh, looking at these links between social justice issues uh, and sports, uh, and is now also working for Les Canadiennes. It's my boss. As <laughs> <laughs> So it's actually kind of, it's funny because when I started putting the panel together, I think it was before you oh, got that job. That. And then, so now I really feel like this is a bit of like a Le Canadien family affair. So um, yeah. yeah. And then also we have Robin Flynn, who's here with us, who is a longtime sports journalist, a radio reporter, fellow radio reporter. Uh, Currently or formerly with TSN? Or? Still, with TSN. still with TSN. It's weird to hear longtime sports journalists. Like, I still feel like I'm a newbie. <laughs> oh, I mean, you've been holding I've been doing it for a while now. Yeah. yeah. And I work with Le Canadien also. I do play by play for their games. There you go. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. Okay. So, yeah. <laughs> applause. Yeah. Thank you. It's like we don't even need one of those like applause signs because you guys just know when to jump in. Um, 
All right, so I guess like we'll kind of break it up into, into three different themes. And I think the first theme I want to look at is kind of like essentially looking at like the state of where we're at with, with women's hockey right now. <clears throat> and I wanted to, to bring up Manon Réon. I mean, it's kind of funny to start with her, I know, in some ways, because um, for me, in some ways, she was like an icon. Like, I was pretty young when she played that famous game. And for those of you, know, I mean, maybe everyone here knows who Manon Réon is, but she famously played an exhibition game with the Tampa Bay Lightning, I think in 1992. So she was the first woman to ever um, get on the ice uh, in the NHL. But I mean, like that, that to me was like a really interesting milestone because I think back then it was really this like kind of question of, you know, will women ever essentially like gain entry into the men's game? And it seems like we're not necessarily there today. I think there's been like a much more concerted effort to obviously grow the women's game of hockey uh, in parallel with the men's game. And, um, you know, sometimes I wonder like, yeah, like what would the Manorium story have looked like if it had happened in 2017 or 2018? Um, but I guess like looking, that was almost, or it was a bit more than 25 years ago now, and, and looking where we're at today with women's hockey in Canada, I'm wondering how far essentially have we come since then, since that famous moment in 1992 when Réaume stepped onto the ice? Um, and what are some of the achievements that have been made and what are some of the obstacles that we still face? And so maybe I wanted to maybe start with you, Meg, because um, I think that you've contributed so much to the growth of women's hockey here in Montreal to maybe kind of start us off on that. I know, I, I saw that question, I was like, oh my gosh, I have about 10 or 11 <laughs> different <laughs> things that I would talk about. Um, but uh, I mean, People here probably already know that women's hockey's been around since the 1800s and basically since the very beginning. Um, I think women played hockey, uh, organized hockey at McGill on the campus there um, in the late 1800s. So I think the game for women has always been there. Women have always been on the ice. Um, but obviously when Manuel Raum stepped on the ice uh, in Tampa Bay, it was a huge moment. Some people say it was a publicity stunt. Um, other people know that she was an incredible goalie who was competitive at that level. Um, so it was kind of a, an interesting moment there, but there have been so many. I mean, like I, I think about uh, Justine Blaney, who when I was playing hockey um, as a young kid in Ontario, um, she fought for the right to play with boys uh, because at that time there were, girls were playing with girls and that's been a very interesting model also. Um, but there's always been this kind of uh, this pull between whether or not girls should play and develop with boys or play with one another. Um, and it is obviously a very gender-based sport in the sense that it, it kind of prioritizes um, you know, speed and, and aggression and physicality. Um, so in some respects, early on in those days, a lot of parents, for example, didn't want their young girls to be in hockey because they thought it would be dangerous or they'd, they'd become injured or something. And those were certainly concerns of my own parents, for example. Um, but I mean, big moments in, in the sport, that was certainly one of them. Uh, for me, I think uh, 1996 in Nagano, when women's hockey became an, an international sport and an Olympic sport for the first time was huge because, first of all, no one thought that would ever happen. Um, so when it did happen, it really put women's hockey on the global stage. And it was from that moment on when we really saw like Canada and, and the US programs really start to develop. And, um, and that first ever games in Nagano was also a really interesting moment in terms of media. There was a lot of attention on the game for the first time. 
Uh, and that's when I kind of, as a young student, got really interested in the game and kind of trying to figure out how it was that we had this national sport that women were kind of starting to become a part of, but somehow were still not able to fully access. Uh, and that had been my own experience too, right? Whenever I would play hockey back in the 80s, people would be like, oh, you mean you play field hockey? And I would be like, no, yeah, like hockey on ice, like <laughs> yeah. our, our national sport, like the one that, that we all kind of, I mean, either love to hate or, or love to love. So uh, for me, yeah, it's always been this, this tension both internally, personally, and also uh, politically on the bigger stage. Uh, but Nagano was huge. Um, even before that, I remember as a kid, actually, the Ontario, it was the first ever world championships was in Ottawa, and they had never done a, a, a women's worlds. So they ended up putting all of, uh, they actually created a jersey for Team Canada that was pink and white because they, they didn't actually know how to sell women's sports. So this was the idea for how to actually put on a showcase. And so I remember going to one of my first tournaments as a kid and I showed up there uh, <laughs> and I remember there were a couple of players that I did know at that time that I looked up to and I saw their jerseys and I was like, oh, it's the Team Canada jersey, but it's pink, like what is this? Um, so right from the beginning, there have always been these weird uh, tensions around uh, um, yeah, how and when and if women's hockey uh, truly is a part of the, the national narrative and also how do girls and women fit into it. Um, so that's been a lifelong kind of interest and passion of mine personally and also I like to, to see how that plays out. But I mean now you just look at I think people had a real aha moment uh, around the the last uh, couple of Olympics between Team Canada and Team USA, mm -hmm. um, those moments where people have really been like, wow, okay, women can play hockey, you yeah. know? It's obvious, and I think it happened in tennis, and it's, it's starting to happen in other sports where people are like, wow, okay, women can really compete, and they can, they can play this game. And I think in Rayom's day, that was the barrier that she actually broke, was to be like, okay, well, she can stand in net, and she can actually stopped those pucks and um, you know people wondered whether or not it would ever be possible for a woman to do and if they did it well it would probably be a net but then a few years later Haley Wickenheiser played pro hockey in Europe and and broke another barrier so um, I think it's been many kind of big moments like that that have stood out for me and obviously being a part of uh, growing a women's pro league now and the struggles and the and the progress that we do make um, those have all been really interesting moments too. And I think if we can build a pro league, then it starts to say something about what we're able to do and redefine the sport in a way through that process too. Yeah. That was long-winded and <laughs> all over the place, but I was trying to give you a survey of moments. I think also though, the, the pinnacle is no longer for women to play men's hockey. That's not, you know, I finally made it when I play men's hockey. Now they want to make the Olympic teams, they want to make the CWHL and the NWHL. There's places for them to play professionally. Obviously they're not making multi-million dollar contracts like they would in the NHL, but I, I think that's pretty cool too, that you don't have to prove yourself among the boys, like you shouldn't really have to. It's, it's a very different game. It's, it's still hockey, it's still super physical, but it's its own entity. And to me, you sh women shouldn't, have to prove themselves amongst guys. Guys don't have to prove themselves amongst girls. So that part I think is is kind of interesting and also just seeing the level of interest that people have in women's hockey because 
even when I was a kid, which wasn't that long ago, you know, like 20 years ago when I was like 10 years old and I liked sports and I liked hockey and people were super confused by that and they thought that it was just so I could be around boys and I was like, no, boys are smelly. I like hockey because I like hockey, you know? Um, and, and that has changed. Girls are, are sort of allowed to like sports now a little bit more. People still get upset, but that has changed, which I think is really nice to see. Yeah, I have to agree. I mean, I remember growing up, I wasn't into sports at all until I was a teenager, so about 15 years old. And it wasn't even any of my guys, guy friends who got me into it. It was my best friends who happened to be four girls. And I first started with soccer, and then I remember my sisters growing up loved watching hockey, and it was the Habs that were on TV, and, and uh, I hated them for it because I always wanted to watch something else. <laughs> and then at some point... Again, I'm, I'm assuming it's hormones or something. 15 was like the age where I got into the sport. And then, you know, I was wondering, okay, well, you know, the Olympics came along and it was 2010, I think was the first time I really paid attention. And I was like, okay, so women play hockey. I had heard of it, but I had never seen it. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. I want to see more of this. And I think the very fact that we have two professional women's hockey leagues in North America shows how far the game has come. You couldn't really talk about that when Manon Réaume was playing, you know? And I remember hearing about Manon Réaume and being amazed by her, and then Charlene Labonté as well in the QMJHL by becoming the second woman uh, to play in Nets in that league. And, and it's just, it's remarkable to see how far the game's come. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, like Robin, you brought up um, something interesting that kind of leads me into my next question, which is like, these uh, multi-million dollar contracts that you see in the NHL, uh, which we don't see in women's professional hockey. Um, although, importantly, like this year is the first year in, in the CWHL, in the Canadian Women's Hockey League, where uh, players are getting paid. Um, I believe they're calling them stipends, is that right? Uh, yeah. And um, there was this really fascinating moment, uh, one that inspired me a lot last year, and perhaps, again, people know this story, um, the, the U.S. women's national team went on strike to actually, you know, like a genuine labor strike to demand fair payment uh, for their work as, as professional athletes. And so, of course, it was accompanied by uh, a social media movement with the hashtag Be Bold for Change. And it was really interesting for me to watch uh, because I've been talking with um, Dave Zirin had been in Montreal just before that, who's, you know, very political, progressive sports journalist. And we, we got in this discussion and it was like, oh, like why aren't we seeing the same kind of activism and the same kind of social justice protests uh, in hockey that we're seeing, let's say for example, in the NFL or in the NBA. And, and what he said to that was, well, sometimes you just need like a little spark. And then like after that, like the next day, the conversation could change and it could be something totally different. And, and, and in a way, I saw that moment as a bit of a spark in women's hockey. And I'm wondering, um, for, for the three of you, like just watching that, what it kind of represented and maybe what kind of space it opened up in the women's game now. I think my favorite part of the U.S. movement was how, you know, USA Hockey kind of was like, cool, we don't need you. We're going to get other people who will be thrilled to wear the jersey. And there was like 16-year-old girls who were saying no. They were mm -hmm. refusing to be scabs. These kids who may never get another chance to play USA Hockey say no because it mattered. Like, that to me, like, it gives me goosebumps just talking and thinking about it. Like, that was really incredible to see. And 
you're right that, you know, you don't really see as much of a social movement. You know, you don't have your Colin Kaepernick, so to speak. But you do have, you know, the CWHL has its first transgender player this year. Right. The N had one last year. Um, so there are little movements like that. But in general, I just find women's hockey such a more inclusive space. You know, like I cover NHL hockey as well, so I really see the difference between the two. And, you know, like when I'm in the press box at the Bell Center, first of all, there's like 100 dudes there. <laughs> and I'm like... <laughs> I know. I'm the only one. <laughs> but then there's like maybe two or three other women there, and it's very white, very male, uh, and it's it's very, I, I would say, toxic even. The environment feels uncomfortable. But when I'm at a Canadian game, I feel like I'm at home. I feel like I'm with family, and it's the crowd that's there. It just feels so welcoming and warm and inviting for everybody. Even people who go for the first time say that. So... I think that's the difference is you don't even necessarily have to speak up against injustice because it's just a more just space. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I think it's interesting because I remember when uh, Shireen Ahmed and Dave Zion came to Concordia to give their talk. We, uh, we ended up doing a podcast with them. Shout out to the Press Box Hat Trick podcast. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, we were talking about why we weren't seeing any social justice movements in hockey. And it's something that hasn't been really explored yet, at least theoretically. Um, and it, you know, it could be many reasons, you know, the nature of the sport and whatnot. But I think what stood out the most for me was when the American women pr protested. Uh, it was their solidarity, and it kind of also, for me, anyways, it broke that stereotype of you know, women being passive as well, because there's always this lingering thing. Oh, you know, we'll put up with whatever, and it's like no. That's not true, and it, I think it was a really good example of women pushing for what was right, and I think it's gonna serve as a great template for other women, and regardless whether it's in sports or in any other field, for them to speak up, because I think that's really important for people to hear that, men and women, so. Well, and it's, it's something that maybe you see a little bit more often in individual sports, but it's an extremely difficult thing to do collectively in team sports, especially mm -hmm. at at the national level where there's such competition internally for those spots. And like Robin said, that's your dream is to, to be in that moment. So to really step back and for them to have been able to say, these are the things that we really uh, believe in. Uh, we don't feel that we've been treated well by Hockey USA who has, they're mandated to you know treat athletes equitably, men and women, and that work and that uh, compete for them. So um, I think it was an extremely um, important moment in, in our sport, and I think it gave them, um, yeah, it gave them quite a big boost. Um, and we'll, we'll see the, the results of that. I think the competition that we're gonna see at, at this current Olympics uh, is representative of this incredible rivalry that's grown over the years, and that would be maybe another like key thing I think that's happened in our sports is just how how these two uh, programs have worked to to push one another to continue being better and uh, and do incredible things on the ice and uh, really prove what's possible. Something else that that you brought up before, Robin, um, that kind of made me think of my next question. I was kind of thinking about like if let's say if we compare the atmosphere of going to a Canadiens game versus to uh, going to a Habs game at the Bell Center. I mean, one thing that I really love about um, the CWHL, and I mean, I can only really speak to going to games here in Montreal because I've only been to, to games here, is um, 
this real like kind of community vibe there, right? And so part of that is the fact of like playing in community arenas, um, but just it's so accessible, right? Like it's really not expensive to buy tickets. Um, but it seems like there's like kind of a bit of a tension between like, you know, you want to obviously get to a place where, um, you know, you're playing the, like the, the players a, a good, you know, livable wage and getting bodies in the seats. And I know like when, when the Canadiens have played at the Bell Center, it's been amazing, right, to see like the amount of people. I think it was the largest ever attendance for um, a women's game when the... When they played at the Bell Center? Played at the Bell Center last year. We had 6,000 people there. So, yeah, um, yeah that was it's, it's a pretty special moment. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think there's probably a player on the ice that had not dreamed of playing one day for the Montreal Canadiens. And so for, for the players, I think that experience of being able to compete on the same ice as, uh, as the, the men's pro team was, was huge. I mean, yeah. Um, yeah. it was a phenomenal game. And... Uh, and like it wasn't just their dreams that were coming true too. Like when everybody's like, since I was a little girl, I wanted to call hockey games, and my mom was like, "Girls don't do that. Right. Like that's not a thing." And I was like, "Okay, well then I'll be the first. You know, like I thought she was crazy. And then as I got older and sort of fell in love with the women's game, you know, that's what I wanted to do. And then Meg was awesome and gave me the opportunity to sort of break in there. And so that was my first time calling a hockey game from a Bell Center press box. Mm -hmm. You know, like minutes before the game, I had tears in my eyes. Like that was an incredible experience. So like, you know, you're trying to keep it all together as these girls are coming on the ice, their dream is coming true, your dream is coming true. Like that was an amazing moment, but it's kind of ridiculous that it's 2018 and that was the first time this was happening. Right. That's crazy. Yeah. I guess what I'm wondering though is like, if we think about like the vision of women's hockey and, and the CWHL in terms of like where we're going with it, um, I'm wondering, like, yeah, is, is there kind of like a goal to eventually get up to like that kind of Bell Center kind of level at one point, or or is that kind of like community atmosphere really the goal, or can you have both? I don't even know if it's like mutually exclusive. Really great question. I mean, it's it's a question about values, I think, ultimately, and part of the values of what we're trying to do, I think, in the CW and certainly with Lake Canadiens is to uh, is to build a community ultimately. I mean, it's, uh, I mean, we're not trying to get money out of our fan base or, I mean, that, <laughs> that obviously helps to be able to have an operating budget. Um, but the idea is really to make hockey accessible to more people. And that's what the women's game has always been about. It truly, at its heart, it was like, we weren't allowed to play this game that's supposed to represent all of us. So uh, access is first of all important. We know it's an expensive sport to play and also just to watch. So. Yeah, I mean, I worked my first game at the Bell Center this year. That was pretty unbelievable. Um, <laughs> it was daunting because I kept getting lost. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but aside from that, no, it was Make a really... Sure you go to the ACC. Yeah, I don't even want to. <laughs> one, one big arena at a time. But uh, yeah, no, it was a great experience. And it was just, you know, for the players, just to see it on their faces. And I think what made it even more special this year was we had Valérie Plante, our first female mayor, come in and gave him a little pep talk beforehand and then and so and Sophie Bette came him in they shook hands and it was just like just to see that visually was so powerful um, yeah I think to go back to your question I think it's really hard to I, I would love to have both in the ideal world and I don't see why you would have to limit the access that much to the extent of for example any professional organization 
you know, any NHL organization. They have those in initiatives, you know, with the fans and whatnot, but it's not like how we do it. Almost after every game, you can interact with the players. So going back to what you were saying, like the values, it's all about that. And it's not just saying that you have those values in theory and writing those down and having them up on your website. It's actually putting them in practice, which Unfortunately, you don't really see that often. Well, there's like a disdain for the fans, I find, with a lot of professional organizations. Not just the Habs, but right. they don't need the fans, you know? Mm -hmm. If that fan doesn't want to come to a game anymore, there's 10 more willing yeah. to take their spot. Yeah. So it's kind of like the fans are commodities. It's just like you're, you're just money in the seat. You know? Whereas it's very different. I find like the fans are appreciated. They're part of the game. You guys skate with the kids afterwards. And like there's yeah. just a bit more you know, camaraderie. Like, I've been around the Habs for years now. You know, if you think of, like, Max Pacioretty, how many times I've interviewed him, and he would barely maybe nod at me if I passed him on the street, but I feel like if I passed Caron on the street, she would, like, stop and hug me. Like, it's a very different, and it's not to say that it's not professional, it's just a way more human environment. Yeah. You know, even the media are treated by professional athletes like, we don't need you, there's tons of you, I don't need to talk to you. Yeah. I mean, that's a really good point. I think, like, professional sports, in a way, has really kind of, like, moved away from its, like, human aspect into, like, this, uh, you know, you have, obviously, like, the Super Bowl. It's happening this weekend. It's just such a circus spectacle. Like, everybody reminisces about, like, the original six days, right? Mm -hmm. And this is what we have with the CWHL. This is the ground floor. This is the original seven. You know, this is, this, if you want that, like... <laughs> But you know, like if you're longing for that romanticism, you know, Morris Richard working all day and then moving and scoring five goals at night, that is happening. Carolyn Willette had a baby and 83 days later was on the ice playing hockey. That is the days of the original six. Okay, so that was the first part of the panel on the state of women's hockey today. Here are a couple of the main takeaways for me from that part. The first goes back to what Robin Flynn said, that the pinnacle is no longer for women to play among the men. We've got two women's pro hockey leagues in North America right now, the Canadian Women's Hockey League and the National Women's Hockey League. But for this to happen, the space for women's hockey had to be cultivated and grown. This is still an ongoing process that will hopefully culminate with women in both those leagues being paid decent living wages for what they do. So, like many feminist issues, this is also a labor issue, as it touches on how women's work is generally undervalued in our society. The second important takeaway is the community that's been built around women's hockey in the last few years. This is just phenomenal. It's a much more community-based vibe than men's pro sports, and one that sees fans as an integral part of the game and treats them with the respect they deserve. Meg Hewings herself said the financial accessibility of the CWHL, the fact that you can pay $15 to go see a game versus the hundreds of dollars you'll pay to go see an NHL game, that financial accessibility was due in part to the fact that women were shut out for so long from the game. Incredible. And when you go to see Kenneth Yen's games, you see hundreds of young girls there to cheer on their heroines, knowing that one day when they grow up, those doors will be open for them to play pro hockey if they want. It makes me think about what the author Matt Hearn said about the importance not only of playing sports, but also of watching sports. In his book, One Game at a Time, he writes, 
You can't participate in or spectate sports without constantly articulating values, running into difference, talking about what matters and why, and being forced to figure out who you have a responsibility for and why. Our core political ideals are always being performed in the gym, rink, ring, field, or track, and then tested materially and bodily. And it's clear that the political ideals being performed at women's hockey games are women's empowerment, accessibility for people of all social classes, and feminism. We're going to look more at inclusivity and community later in this podcast, specifically with regards to the queer community. But for now, let's continue with this live recording of Changing on the Fly. Okay, well, we're going to move to uh, to the second, uh, I guess, broad category that I want to talk about, which is sports media. And so, Safi, I want to start with you because you wrote um, a really amazing piece uh, for The Link last year um, where it was looking uh, essentially like at, at sexism and racism and how they kind of continue to proliferate within uh, sports journalism. And so in it, you, you kind of go through a report from the, the Women's Media Center, which found that in 2016, 91.5% of sports editors in North America were white and only 9.5% were women. And so uh, like, I'm wondering if you could maybe like speak to that, like, you know, as a woman of color, um, as someone who has been working in media and, and now working in sports, uh, what's that like in a way to kind of like not see yourself reflected in in this media it's weird um i remember seeing the stat the first time and well some of the first you know thoughts i had that came to mind was how appalling that was um because that was you know i wrote that article in 2016 that was two years ago and i'm willing to bet that it's probably the same stat this year um it's just it's very strange and i can't say i'm surprised you know, I wasn't really expecting anything more either. Um, I, growing up, I, I guess I was always a little bit of an idealist, and because I had a very supportive family, I never thought I couldn't do it just because I didn't see myself. So the first woman I did see, uh, you know, doing sports journalism was Chantal Maccabee on RDS. She was literally the one and only person I knew of. So I was like, okay, she is one person <laughs> who is a woman. I'm like, she can do this, I can do this. And I've, I remember meeting her and being in awe. She had one of her RDS colleagues <laughs> next to her and I completely ignored him. I was like, oh, not important. Um, but I remember talking to her and she was, very, she was very nice and very encouraging and she showed me it wasn't impossible to do so. But as another woman of color, I mean, I can't, you know, aside from Shireen Ahmed, who I literally discovered, you know, I discovered she existed last year. You know, and before that, I can't really think of anyone else that came to mind. And obviously in Montreal, I was just trying to look. I was like, okay, are there any female voices? And I discovered Robin, and I discovered Andy Bennett, et cetera. And I remember speaking to you for that article, and it was really what you said was so important. And it was just, I, I think it's important to have people who, in the media, who look like you and who sound like you. Because uh, I, I think till this day, I was speaking to a friend she was telling me how she, she's in sports media as well, she works for a hockey team. And a little girl came up to her and was like, are you someone's, a little girl, are you someone's boyfriend, husband? Are you related to any of these players? And she's like, oh my God, no. <laughs> like, I, like I work for the team, the, the little girl, she's a kid. She was in awe, she couldn't believe. And that was, that was this year or last year. You know, and it's so important to see that. And I think especially now, the more I immerse myself in it, the more it bothers me 
You know, I when I did my internship at the Gazette, it was a great internship, but I was literally the one of two only brown people. I could say that, but <laughs> I was one of two only Southern Asian, uh, you know, reporters in the newsroom, and everyone else was white. You know, and they were all very nice. It's, that's not the problem, but you know, it's it's the fact that that's still happening, and it's a huge problem. And there's so many talented writers and voices, people of color, who have so much to say and so many perspectives to give, and we're, we're being denied that for, for what reason? I don't know. Yeah. And it seems like it looks on paper like it's getting better, but it's not. Like, I remember being so excited when I started working at, it was Team 990 then, now TSN 690. They had Andy Bennett, and then she moved on, but there was Jess Resnack and me and Amanda Stein, and I was like, wow, this is so awesome. They have all these women. But, like, we were all relegated to, like, fill-in shifts and weekend shows, you know. There was no women in primetime slots once Andy Bennett left. So that was kind of frustrating. And then, you know, Jess left. Now she's at CBC. Amanda left. She works for the Devils now. And, you know, I have a weekend show for an hour. And I, I'm, you know, constantly pushing more women's hockey coverage and really forcing it down their throats. And, like, it's frustrating because I sometimes feel like if I wasn't doing that, they wouldn't even be thinking about it. Um, and I do appreciate like my colleagues who will come up to me with like sensitive issues when an athlete is accused of sexual assault, things like that, just on how to cover that in such a way that it's not tone deaf. You don't want to ignore it altogether, but you still want a sports station to be fun. So how do you find that balance? You know, and, and just looking at the people you're asking to come on the radio so that it's not just all white dudes, so that you're getting people of color, women, different voices in there as well. And, you know, I think, like, Mitch Melnick is really, really great for that. He has Arpen Bassi on. He has Andy Petrillo on. And he really is, like, a proud feminist. And I think that's important that you have allies who are men who recognize there's not enough women who are doing this. Mm -hmm. You know, we need, we need more. Um, I wanted to talk about, I guess, like, backlashes against women sports journalists because it seems like it's constantly there. I know, Robin, you faced um, huge backlashes, specifically after the coverage you did around uh, the Patrick Kane uh, rape allegations in Chicago. And I'm wondering if you could just talk about that. Whew. That was such a like difficult period because I was so used to getting harassment online. Like It's almost like par for the course. Because um, I also work at CJD, and I have opinions about not just sports, like about you know unions and politics and things that people want to send you death threats over when you have an opinion on. And so I was kind of used to it, you know, which sounds silly. But I would just see him be like, oh, there's another block, you know. But after I wrote a piece for Habs Eyes on the Prize about the Patrick Kane rape allegations, I started getting rape threats, death threats, and like really, really graphic ones. Not like, oh, I hope you die. Like, I hope you get raped with a hockey stick until you bleed to death. And then like you call the cops and they're like, well, it's not really a threat because they didn't say they were going to do it. They said they hoped it happened to you. So they won't do anything about it. Twitter won't do anything about it. And it was coming in so fast, like I don't know if anyone uses TweetDeck where it sort of auto-refreshes, so it just moves, right? Mm -hmm. So you're used to seeing your timeline move pretty quickly. My mentions were doing that super fast, so I couldn't even read them, and it was all hate. And like I have my DMs open on Twitter, so you can imagine how much worse it is there with things people don't want in the public. And there's this you know, perception that it's, uh, it's just losers in their mom's basements. They have eggs for avatars. But it's like guys holding their four-year-old daughter in their picture. And I'm like, how would you, you feel if somebody called your daughter a cunt one day? You know, because I have a dad too, and I'm sure he doesn't like being able to see that on the internet. 
So that kind of stuff happens so often. And I think people get kind of sick of me always pointing it out when it does. But I think it's important to remind people when this happens that it's like a normal part of my life. And yeah, men in journalism and sports journalism get you know, feedback and death threats. Sometimes it's not warranted, but it's always you're an asshole. It's not you're an asshole because you're a woman. It's never this gendered threat where they're, they're basically trying to make you leave, to leave the space. And ultimately, the thing that pisses them off the most is that I don't leave, <laughs> you know, that they're calling me these names and threatening this horrible stuff. And then I just, you know, wrote my next article and I just kept talking. That's what drives them crazy. And that's what makes me feel good. And I have taken retribution in some ways where I've looked them up on Facebook or if they've texted into the radio station, Googled their phone number, figured out where they worked, sent screenshots of things to their wives. I've done that before. <laughs> and the harassment always stops. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's intense to say the least. And, you know, it almost seems in a way like too easy for these like trolls to thrive because it's like the era of social media. Um, and, and, and I've been asking people this a lot too, like knowing that like, you know, we just live in this culture now where people in a sense can like hide behind their keyboards and say like the most vile things. Um, like how, how do, I guess like when, when you're seeing this, like how did it kind of like make you feel in the, in the sense of like, what were you thinking just in terms of defending yourself? Well, like you want to fight back, but you know at the end of the day it's not a fight you're going to win because they think the way they think, and I'm not going to change that. But at the same time, you can't just ignore it. I think a lot of people always tell people, just ignore the online abuse, but you can't, like, forget it. You know, you saw it. It made some sort of impression in your brain. So it, you can't just get rid of it. You have to process it somehow. So I try and not take it to heart, but like you never know, you're having a bad day, somebody just hits that wrong nerve. Like I remember with the Patrick Kane stuff, there was a girl who said to me, you're just jealous because Patrick Kane would never rape you, or you know, like nobody would ever rape a fat cow like you when I am a rape survivor. So like that kind of thing like really hurts, you know, to, to hear that it brings back other experiences. Like you don't know what the person you're talking to has been through, you know? It's not just some random person. It's a human being with a dad and a family. You know, they're a real person. And I think people just don't think that. They just see this person on the internet that's not real, but we're real. You can't talk to people that way. They wouldn't say that to me on the street. You know, like I've done it before too with texters at CJD who text in horrible things and I call them. And, you know, they're like, oh, I didn't know you could see my phone number. And, you know, once they have you on the line, they're like, oh, no, no, I, I didn't mean it. I listen to you all the time. I think you're great. And you're like, okay. People are just really cowardly when they think they're anonymous. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack there. Needless to say, it's so crucial to support and make room for more women's voices in the world of hockey and sports media. On that note, I wanted to put two things out there. For ongoing, amazing feminist sports coverage, you have to check out the Burn It All Down podcast. It's hosted by a team of five amazing women sports writers, and they cover all sports, yes, including hockey. And you get to hear their coverage of leagues, teams, and players you don't normally ever get to hear of. So therefore, you get to learn new things every episode. Go subscribe to it now. You can even push pause on this podcast to go do it. And you can find them at burnitalldownpod.com. 
Also, speaking of backlashes against women journalists who cover hockey, an epic example of that happened with Julie DeCaro in Chicago, who covered the Patrick Kane rape allegations as well. There was a video that went viral in 2016 of a bunch of men literally struggling through reading mean tweets back to DeCaro because they were so vile. Here's what that sounded like. Hopefully this skank Julie DeCaro is Billy Co- Bill Cosby's next victim. That would be classic. I don't know what to say to that. I don't. It's really worth watching that whole video because it's pretty freaking shocking. And it's really important that we all stand up against the harassment of women in sports media. Anyways, on to the third part of this panel discussion, which takes on the question of queer and LGBT inclusivity in hockey. So Meg, I want to throw it back to you because you used to have this awesome blog, uh, Hockey Dyke in Canada. And it's not up anymore, unfortunately, but I'm wondering if you can... I just got the domain renewal (laughs) reminder. But tell us about Hockey Dyke in Canada. When I was younger, I did do media studies. I was here at Concordia, too, and uh, and I... I always was interested in, in, in hockey and sports, and it was a thing that I shot first when I was doing video art. And, um, and so at some point I was like, oh, there are no women that are doing broadcasting. There are no women basically uh, in sports that I could see. And instead of uh, really wanting a job in traditional media, it was never something I wanted to move towards. So I said, okay, well, we're, it's the blogging world. It was just beginning. And so I said, okay, I'll make this blog, Hockey Dyke in Canada. Um, and it stemmed from, obviously, you know, the famous Hockey Night in Canada um, show, which I wanted to kind of pervert and uh, turn around. And so, like, you know, I dressed up and dressed down and take off all of my equipment in front of the camera and then started to... It was like a, it was a place to play, basically. Like, it was a blog that was about uh, writing whatever I wanted. It was sort of a space that I could um, try to, to do different things in and to to talk about different things and then I worked with edgy women and we did unruly hockey so we tried all these new experiments with hockey uh, where we kind of did like an anarchist game so we changed all the rules and we <laughs> invited everyone to come and and then we were like okay you have to jump over every line so at, at, like there's 30 <laughs> people on the ice and they like jumping all over because I was like why do we have to play with the same rules so it was kind of this space of experimentation and uh, it was a place to really um, I think sort of develop personally and as a, as a writer, but also uh, as someone who is doing all kinds of multimedia. And it was super fun. I mean, that's kind of what I like to do in all of the, the projects that I take on. And um, in a way, for me, what's interesting about, about hockey is that it, it had, there are all these ideas attached to what it should be and how we're supposed to play it. And that's the main argument when you read all the comments about women's hockey. You know, if you, you read down all those nasty comments, it's like, oh, well, you'll, you'll never be as good as boys and it will never be as good as midget AAA. And I'm like, well, it's not the same thing at all. It's a different sport. And why is it that we have this idea of what hockey is supposed to be when we're constantly redefining everything all the time? And that's the fun of of play, it's the fun of sport. Um, so yeah, the blog was was as much about, uh, I think, radical kind of self-expression, and also inclusiveness in the sense that it was uh, it was also a queer blog. It was trying to talk about the fact that in women's sports, you know, there's always this 
stereotype that everybody is gay, and frankly, a lot of people are, but uh, it's, it's an environment that is queer positive. Um, you know, we talked about the CW being one of the first uh, leagues to partner with um, You Can Play. Uh, we have our uh, transgender player that just came out. So it's an environment where we're really working to make it more inclusive and to make hockey more inclusive. Yeah. And there's like such a difference too, like statistically in men's leagues, there's at least two or three guys on every team that are gay, but they're not out. And if right. they do come out, it's only like the fourth liners or they come out after they're retired or if they come out early, like Michael Sam, you're not gonna have a career, you know? Mm -hmm. So the difference is in women's hockey is women are super out, you know? And, and that's different, I'm sure, than even 10 years ago, but they're super proud. And we were interviewing Carolyn Willette this weekend, and she was proudly talking about her partner and the baby they just had and how they did it together, and nobody even batted an eye, you know? And it wasn't just me and bloggers or whatever, there was, like RDS and you know there was mainstream media there and it was like no big deal this is normal like whatever yeah so like that is kind of cool and it's I honestly I feel bad for guys that they have this pressure to mm. be straight and macho and that they can't have emotions you know you have the leader of our country in a press conference talking about Gord Downey passing away and they were friends and he cried and people thought that was a, a show of weakness and that there was something wrong with him that he calls himself a feminist and like, how could he not be? He has a daughter. <laughs> like, yeah. and, and it's weird that really the people who are super far right-leaning call us snowflakes, but they're the ones that are snowflakes. You know, well, you'll never be as good as the boys because they hope we'll never be as good as the boys. They need something yeah. to hang on to. So, you know, when they call me a social justice warrior, I always sort of take it with a grain of salt and picture myself with a cape. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, it's be a badge of honor. Too, but it's like right? such a comforting environment, that, that difference, you know? Yeah. and how much more normal mm -hmm. it is. I mean, coming back to the, the atmosphere at Ken and Yen's games, um, one thing that I think is phenomenal, I often tell people it's like being at a Ken and Yen's game is like almost like half the crowd are like young girls who are there to like cheer on like their, their idols, like people who they want to grow up. And then like the other half of the crowd is like, folks who are out cruising or like on dates or you know like people from like the queer scene who are there and I think that's amazing because like like my experience and of course like I grew up playing like boys and men's hockey was um, awful because there was so much like shaming right so if like if you didn't make the pass if you didn't score any goals um, you were automatically called um, you know a fag and and you know for some like I, I don't even identify as queer but that's kind of like what shamed me away from hockey for so long um, and then you have like this, this space at, at Ken and Yen's games where there's the partnerships with the You Can Play project. If people don't know You Can Play, it's this uh, uh, really amazing initiative that was started by the, uh, the Burke family out in Calgary that encourages uh, queer athletes through all sports. Um, and what I'm wondering is, is like building that atmosphere at Ken and Yen's games, was, was that like a concrete effort? Did that kind of just like come naturally through women's hockey? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I think it's a little bit of both. Um, mm. Obviously, um, when you when you think about women's sports, you're not appealing necessarily to the same audience. So, like we talked before about how we're trying to make it accessible, it is affordable to go. Um, you know, a lot of families are there, but all different kinds of families. Um, and I think naturally, there's there's kind of 
there's a lot of solidarity between female athletes uh, in all sports. So we do get a lot of athletes that come that want to watch. Um, and also, yeah, I mean, we've, we've nurtured a queer audience, too, because that's who our community is. And um, they've always been supportive of the game uh, and always been around the game, too. So uh, I think if, if women's sports is going to thrive, it will be because we, we look at really the fact that there have been so many people excluded from participating in sport or even some guys that got turned off, say, early on by some of the, the nasty kind of uh, aggressive um, dominant forms of masculinity that are unappealing to so many people. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that maybe there are different ways of, of enjoying sports and athletic feats. And, um, and I think that there's a, there's a real audience for women's hockey that's, that likes alternative sports, that appreciates all kinds of uh, athletic endeavors. And that's kind of who we've been seeing uh, join our, our group of fans. And, as these guys point out, we, we really do have a, a community that's grown up and that in a way has, I think, happened organically. Yeah. But what I wanted to kind of end on was uh, this, people have been calling it the Me Too moment that, that we're in right now, right? Um, what I'm wondering though is like maybe looking forward, um, you know, of course we were talking a little bit about like sexual assault and how it plays out in sports media and in the online world is I guess like what kind of spaces do we see opening up? Maybe not, not simply for, for sexual assault, but for, for people in women's hockey to kind of be using these platforms, to be using social media to, to open up these spaces, uh, whether it's you know, calling out sexual assault or calling out homophobia, um, or just you know like standing up for like for for women's rights and creating more of a space in the game. I guess like how how are you all seeing this kind of Me Too movement uh, play out in hockey, or how might it play out over the coming months and years? I notice a lot more people asking me for advice. Kind of like I've always been a very outspoken feminist and a very outspoken sexual assault survivor. I talk about my experience all the time, so. People come to me and like, oh, with this story, you know, can you just check my wording or make sure I'm doing it justice? Who should I talk to? And to me, I always tell them the fact that you're even just thinking about this means you're on the right track. You know, just taking a second to be like, wait, am I doing this story justice? But like after Larry Nassar, like you read headlines that say like allegedly sexually assaulted over 150 women. No, 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 not allegedly anymore. He's convicted, sentenced. You don't have to use allegedly anymore, you know? So just that right away in the headline, it's like there's a reason to distrust women. Um, and, you know, I've even heard from people saying, I'm so afraid of being accused of sexual harassment in the workplace that makes me want to work with women less and I would never close my door with women. But, like, I work with tons of dudes who've never sexually harassed me. Like, it's, it's pretty easy to be a human being. Um, you know, do you not sexually harass your male colleagues? Just do that. It's the same thing. So there is like this shift in perception and a lot of people call it like a witch hunt on men, but like if you have nothing to be afraid of, like to, if you're not doing anything, you have nothing to be afraid of, you know? So I, I, I kind of am enjoying this shift, you know, the ones that do have something to be afraid of, the thought of them sitting at home right now waiting for that moment when the blog post comes out about what they did, that, you know, never publish the blog post, just let them... Let them sweat. <laughs> that's almost a little bit more satisfying. But I think that's the difference. Every industry is having its Me Too moment now. It's not just Hollywood. It's not just sports. It's, 
you know, PR in New York right now is having a Me Too moment. Like, it, pretty much any industry is having its moment. That's a good thing. There's been a lot of good reporting, actually, in, in, in men's sports about uh, sexual assault in hockey, and there's a long legacy of uh, very shameful things that have happened in our national sport. Um, so we'll see. I don't know how, what the next thing is, to be honest, but yeah, I don't know if a lot of people know some of the writing that's already been done, but there's a lot of very, very interesting things that have, have kind of been written about, especially within uh, um, men's sport and sexual assault, not just against women, but internally uh, um, men on men, obviously uh, Sheldon Kennedy now, who's very involved in, in the CW also. In our league, he has two daughters who play, and he's been very aligned with the Calgary Inferno, our, our Calgary-based team. Mm -hmm. um, doing a lot of work about being outspoken about sexual assault in hockey, and in particular, yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what it, what it will mean for the Me Too uh, movement per se, but yeah. um, I think that there's much more outspokenness mm -hmm. about uh, how uh, sexual assault and sexual abuse in our sport has uh, has happened, and ways to sort of uh, prevent that in future or try to anyway. All right, so there you have it. That was our panel called Power Play, How Women Can Change Sports Journalism and Hockey. It was a live recording of this podcast done at the Feminist Media Studio at Concordia University in Montreal on January 31st, 2018. Again, our panelists were Meg Hewings, Safia Ahmad, and Robin Flynn. Check out the show notes of this episode to find their Twitter handles and more of their work. I want to leave you with one more final reflection since we ended on a really strong note looking at the future of the Me Too movement in hockey. And this is from an opinion piece published in the Globe and Mail by Kate Reddy Taylor. The piece is called How the Maple Leafs, as in the Toronto Maple Leafs, can get on the right side of Me Too. In the piece, Taylor is lamenting the fact that the Leafs still use the Ice Girl squad of skimpy dressed women who come out to clean the ice during TV commercial breaks. She writes, What message are the Maple Leafs sending to hockey-loving girls in the stands who aren't yet part of the Me Too movement? That the only way they can aspire to skate on the ice at the Air Canada Centre is if they look good in a form-fitting jersey? Seeing such outdated attitudes prevail makes me wonder how many of those girls will be saying Me Too themselves in a few years. We'll link to that whole piece in our show notes. Definitely go read it. Basically, though, the takeaway from that and from the whole panel you just heard is that it's high time we recognize that women make up a huge part of the hockey world, whether it's fans or players, and we need to start making room for them because their game is good and, guys, we've been taking up way too much of the ice for far too long. If you enjoyed this episode of Changing on the Fly, make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you can hear all the back episodes and all future upcoming episodes. For more info on the podcast, find us online at changingontheflypodcast.wordpress.com or email us at changingonthefly_podcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. My name is Aaron Lakoff. Thanks for listening. Hey, Aaron here again. Hope you enjoyed that live presentation of Changing on the Fly episode four. We're going to do two quick things before we head out of here once and for all. 
I'm gonna thank all of our supporters on Patreon. Ann, Aiden, Jeff, Nick A, Jeremy, Nick T, Eldridge, Ellen, Sam, Grill, and Dasha. If you want to have your name amongst those shouted out at the end of every episode, if you want to support this podcast, once again, go to patreon.com slash changing on the fly. Also, finally, we are a proud member of the Upford Network of Podcasts. You can find your new favorite podcast at upfordnetwork.com. All right, that's it. We're out of here. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Mel. And I'm Sass. And we're the host of The Last Stretch, a sports podcast. It's a podcast where we're going to talk about, well, sports. Specifically, what we do look at is what makes an athlete be the best that they can be. So not only do we talk to some athletes, but we talk to the people behind the athletes, from trainers to sports psychologists, you name it, we're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about other issues revolving sports as well, hot button issues like concussions, maybe doping. Give us a listen. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. The first ever World Championships was in Ottawa. And they had never done a, a, a women's worlds. They actually created a jersey for Team Canada that was pink and white because they, they didn't actually know how to sell women's sports. So this was the idea for how to actually put on a showcase. And so I remember going to one of my first tournaments as a kid and I showed up there uh, <laughs> and I remember there were a couple of players that I did know at that time that I looked up to. And I saw their jerseys and I was like, oh, it's the Team Canada jersey, but it's pink. Like, what is this? So right from the beginning, there have always been these weird uh, tensions around uh, how and when and if women's hockey uh, truly is a part of the, the national narrative and also how do girls and women fit into it.